Hi, this is Jodie Kidd. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to the Chubb interviews this year. Coming up are some of the highlights from the series. We will be back in the new year for more Chubb interviews. But in the meantime, enjoy the best of 2020. The Chubb interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. It's time to say hello to our special guest, Mr. Derek Bell. The last time we saw each other was doing the Mila Melia, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was quite interesting because, bless his heart, losing dear old Sterling the other week sort of oh, highlighted the Mila Melia. And uh, on that trip, because the only time I ever did it, they had done a feature on my experience on the classic. And of course, I finished the rally and this bloke had it all written down and he reprinted it with a little bit of extra from me now about Sterling. And um, the amazing part of that Mila Melia was that on the very last day, we pulled over the line to finish in the C-type Jag, which is one of the life's experiences. And um, we pulled across the line. And as I stopped on the block to finish, uh, Sterling mm. and Susie walked across the road. And that, to me, was quite an amazing moment, but even more so now, of course. I have to say that it's one of my proudest moments is that I was in the Jaguar team yes. with you. Yes, um, Not that we really saw each other a lot, I suppose, because you were, <laughs> we were... in a completely different group. So, um, well, we were perpetually last day. I think you were getting lost a few times, weren't you, yes, through yes. your co-pilot? I've never um, in my life had a problem with my co-driver, I bet, no. you know, because I never had to sit with him. When Jackie or, you know, Jochen or ever, when they were in the car, I was obviously having a cup of tea somewhere. Yeah. But in this case, I was there with this guy. We said, we don't need a route book. We don't, what's that book for? I said, oh, that's to show us our direction. Oh, we don't need that. So oh, about my five goodness. Miles. He said, just follow the others. I said, yeah, but we don't know where they're going. Anyway, I that can't believe that happened. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. but I mean, just and as you said, to cross the line and to have Sterling there, it's a very magical race, and um, yes. and I think we did it in three days or something. But yeah, for something Sterling, like that, Sterling to do yes. it in ten hours, you, yeah, you, you I really still take can't quite understand that. I, yeah, can't, I, I can't fathom that one out because we were going like lunatics. Wonderful oh. achievement. It was. And I just, as I said, I dine out on the fact that I was in a team with you. Um, right. So we all discussed that we had a certain family member or a relative or someone close that really kind of helped sparked our love and our passion for cars or classic cars or racing cars. So was there someone like that for you? Actually, no. My dear old dad, bless him, um, because my parents split up actually after the Second World War, you know, so I was like three or four. But my dear old dad never drove till he was about 45. But the one thing that did affect me was the fact that Goodwood was only five miles away from Pagham, where we lived. And also I drove tractors from the age of nine on my stepfather's farm. So I think it was probably him if there is a person. And he was such a magnificent part of my early career when he helped me so much. The strange thing was I did go to the Jim Russell Racing Driver School. I, I did it all rather late. I didn't go there till I was 20, something like that. And I remember coming back one day, having it sort of finished, and the, I told the old man that I'd actually done really rather well, and Jim was sort of excited about how well I'd gone. Mm-hmm. He had his newspaper, I'd put his paper down, he said, you prove to me you have the ability and I'll help you. And with that, mm-hmm. I was on my own. So although, I, having said he helped me, he actually told me to get off my bike and do it. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. It is time to introduce our special guest for our 70th anniversary celebration. And I can tell you, he is a perfect choice for this occasion. He comes from basically racing royalty, a family who have been at the heart of motorsport and F1 for 
over 60 years. Not only that, he belongs to an elite group of drivers to win Le Mans and son of one of the most talented and successful F1 racers of all time, Sir Jack Brabham. So our wonderful guest today is David Brabham. I guess I took a slightly unusual route to motorsport because obviously with my father's history, it's very easy to think, oh, dad stuck me in a go-kart at the age of four and kind of off I went. That couldn't be further from the truth. He did everything possible to actually keep me away from motorsport, to be frank. You don't send your kid to an agricultural boarding school in the middle of Australia if you want him to go motor racing because you know, we had a farm and I was being groomed to be the farmer. And I loved sport. I loved driving on the farm. I just loved the thrill of driving quickly and on the edge. But I never really thought about getting in the car and going racing like the rest of my family did. So it wasn't until I left school at 16, went to a college to learn about wool. But during that time, I went to America for about three months, went and saw my older brother, Jeffrey, who was racing in Indy cars at that time. And I started to sort of fall in love with motorsport then and saw a go-kart sitting in a workshop. There was a mechanic working on it. And I remember, I still remember this very clearly because I I sort of asked the most stupidest question. Do people race go-karts? Is that what your first question was? That was my first question. Do people race go-karts? And the bloke looked at me. My brother's in the car doing a seat fit. And uh, he says, are you adopted? Yeah, he's so, literally disowning like, he could, you. Yeah, exactly. He could not believe that came out of my mouth, but it was true. I, that's how far removed I was from racing. And so when I went back to Australia and sat down with my dad and said, look, you know, I'd really like to go on a go-kart, you know, his jaw just dropped because he never thought those words would come out of my mouth. I'm so excited to have this chat because I love speed and there is something about humans that speed is so important to us and for our incredible guests to have broken every record and just be such an inspiration to all our kind of speed freaks out there. So I'm so, so excited to say hello to our special guest, Mr. Richard Noble OBE. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. uh, Life is pretty good at the moment. So you're a land speed record holder. You're an engineer. You're a man that likes to push the envelope with everything that you do. Where did that motivation first begin and and what was that spark? Well, curiously enough, it happened when I was age six. My dad was in the army and he uh, he was based at Inverness in Scotland. And one day he decided to take us all for a, a Sunday drive around the north side of Loch Ness. And uh, when we came to Temple Pier there, uh, based there was John Cobb's jet boat, Crusader. So this was a time when most airplanes had propellers, and this guy had somehow got a hold of a jet engine and built it into the most futuristic vessel you've ever seen. And I was just absolutely amazed by this. And, uh, you know, and I went home as, as a kid and I studied. I started building um, jet engines out of, out of cardboard, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, well, Jodie never let go. So, um, you know, here we are. We're still going. <laughs> You're listening to highlights from the Chubb interview series with me, Jodie Kidd. So Frank Stevenson is a world-renowned automotive designer with more than three decades. You don't look like that. It looks like only only a couple um, of leading design for marks such as Mini, Ferrari, Maserati and McLaren. Frank has been responsible for some of the most successful products in recent automotive history. Going back 
a little bit more in your incredible career, which I find incredibly fascinating. And every time we get together, I just like, I literally, as we were laughing earlier, I just go and talk because it's just such an incredible life that you've had. But I wanted to go back to Mini, which you were basically in charge of reinventing the iconic Mini for the modern world, which must have been, that's a massive thing to do in an incredible period. Can you tell us about that one? I can't tell you a little bit because there's a lot of it. <laughs> First of all, it was one of the most complicated design missions or projects you could ever imagine because you're absolutely playing with fire, as they say, when you're trying to reinvent or redesign an icon. We all know how important the Mini is, especially in the British culture. It was the car for many families. It got so close and so personal that I think everybody named their mini something. Maggie, Molly, John, whatever, I don't know. But it was a member of the family. And that car lasted for an unbelievable amount of time in the same way that it was launched, in the same shape. So the, very few cars ever go through such a, a long period of time in their history without being actually modified in one way or another through its development or stages of life cycle. But the Mini was one of those. It lasted up until 1999. But the interesting thing that happened with the Mini was in the 90s, early 90s, BMW bought it, bought the company, Rover Group, of which Mini was part of Land Rover, Rover, MG, Triumph, Wolseley, if anybody remembers that brand, a lot of them. And they decided just to hold on to a couple of them. The big debate at BMW in the, in the 90s was, what do we do with the original Mini? Do we let it run out its life cycle in 99, which would be the end of its life because of certification, homologation? Or do we try and reinvent the Mini and therein lied the problem because a German company trying to reinvent a British icon meant that very easily it could be not accepted as an authentic update of the original Mini or a substitute or a, a follower. So it really was a delicate program for BMW to say, yes, we're going to reinvent the Mini. In normal times, when a company tries to reinvent or even try to produce a successor to a, a car, They'll go and produce maybe three new designs of that car, of that model. And one will be, a, um, say, a very futuristic version. One will be far out and one will be in the middle somewhere. Those three proposals would become one of those, perhaps the new car that's going to be shown. BMW, in its effort to make sure that they got it right, in terms of choosing a new design for the new Mini, decided to do 15 new design proposals with 15 designers around the world so that they would get sort of a, a wide perspective of what the 21st century Mini could look like. So that broke the budget, but still they had a wide perspective of what all the cars could look like or what the new Mini could look like. On the day of the shootout, which is when we launched or showed all the 15 cars, we had everything from one extreme, obviously, to the other extreme. One car that looked like it had just been scaled up from the original Mini to the opposite. It wasn't a Mini. It was more like from outer space. But the one I did was kind of in the middle. It was like the true successor of, of what the Mini could have looked like had it evolved every generation. So I had a month to design it. The first week I designed what could have been the 69 Mini. The second week I did what could have been the 79 Mini, 89 to third. And then the last week I did the 99. So what I did was build a design evolution of the original such that it would look like that had it evolved after 40 years. So yeah, that car came out in Paris in September of 2000, the motor show there, and huge success right from the start. We kind of expected it to. I'd spent the last five years seconded to the Rover studio in Gaydon and uh, worked with the Rover team there to turn the clay model that I designed into the real car. 
And right from the marketing research clinics that we had all over the world, people were saying, this is absolutely fabulous. This is, uh, we don't know what car it is, but I'll buy it. So it came out and it started becoming the it car, I think, around the world. Did a really good job. And you can see today how successful it's been. And, you know, the factory is built up and uh, it's created a lot of jobs and uh, dealerships and everything. So it's done very well. So we're joined on the line by Simon Thornley, who, with Wayne Kellum, was co-founder of one of the world's foremost classic car restoration businesses. When I came back from the States in 92, I was told I could have a company car and everyone else had three series BMWs. And I said, can I have an Integrale? So I managed to buy a bright red Integrale Evo in 1992 as my company car. One of my favourites. Which I kept for five years. And then I drove an Aurelia. And I just couldn't believe it. The B20 GT, it was a third series car. And I just thought, blimey. And then I looked around and realized that although they weren't worth a huge amount, they were just the most phenomenal car. Innovative, a car for engineers, if you like. Lancia was an engineering-led mm. business. We kind of got into doing Lanchas. And that led us to do probably the, my favorite restoration, which was arguably the most famous B20 GT of all, which was Giovanni Bracco's first series B20 chassis 1010, which came second overall in the, in the Millimilia. Six weeks later, he won his class at Le Mans and came ninth overall. Won a series of races over the summer. Had the car lowered for aerodynamic reasons. Took it on the Carrera Panamericana and crashed out on the fourth day. And the car disappeared and was this legendary car. And then a client of ours found it through a colleague in the industry in the States. I'm not cutting a long story short, but anyway, it came to us to restore. And that became an incredible journey because the car was messed about with. It was incomplete here and there, but it had its original engine, all its original componentry. Did you know about the history before the car kind of turned up on your forecourt? Uh, well, we, I had to go and uh, view it with a dear industry colleague, Mark Donaldson, who's just great. And we had to go down and see it in a bonded warehouse in South End. So I'd read up about it beforehand. I didn't know about the car before. I love the research side of and the history of cars, by the way. I think it's a big part of my love for the whole scene. So I did some research and went down there with Mark and we were looking over it and found telltale things. Because I, I went on the train thinking it, it won't be, it can't be. There's no way it's that car, you know. In fact, I can feel the, the hairs on the back of my neck just remembering that mm. moment when you do realise that it's the real deal. You're listening to highlights from the Chubb interview series with me, Jodie Kidd. In 96, Gregor's passion for classic cars led him to open his dealership, Fiskin's Fine Historic Automobiles, in London's South Kensington. Well, the very first classic car I ever raced, Bunty gave me. He has a Vauxhall 3098 racing car, and it raced at Brooklands in the 1930s. And I used to drive Bunty in his 70s, and he had quarter vision in one eye. He was diabetic, and he had both legs and calipers. But the Vintage Sports Car Club were very all-embracing, and he used to be allowed to race. He was absolutely lethal, and everyone stayed out his way. And uh, one day he said, dear boy, he said, you should have a go. And I was 17, and I just got my license, and I did my first Vintage Sports Car Club race in that car, and I had a few years of fun with it. And when he passed away, he, he left it to me. And I still have that car today. So that's my first ever racing car, and I've still got it. And I still use it. I still drive it. And my kids are only six and a bit. But uh, I suspect that even before they've got a license, they'll be driving it too. Amazing. So may I ask what's in your collection? It's always ever-evolving. We've got the Vauxhall. We've got a short-nosed Jaguar D-Type, which is a lovely, lovely car. For family purposes, we've got a Bentley 4.5-litre sports saloon. 
I'm a terrible one for souvenirs, and I was, like yourself, I was able to do a little bit of modern car racing, and I raced at Le Mans a few times in 2004, 5, 6, and 7. And my last Le Mans, uh, you never say never, there might not be another one, but I, I was lucky enough to drive for the French Aston Martin team, Labra, and we ran a, a factory Aston Martin DBR9. We had a difficult Le Mans that year, but we finished. All six works Astons finished, which was a hell of an achievement. And I kept the car. We did our last race at Interlagos in Brazil. And uh, we went very much as a gentleman team against and the works Corvette sent their team because they wanted to win the championship. But they had a gearbox problem, which was bad for them but good for us and we had a good run and we won the gt1 class and uh, i was able to buy the car at the end of the season and i've kept it we ran it at goodwood this year my good scottish pal dario franchiti drove it we're cooking up a plan he's retired but these things you can now use in historic racing so we if we can have le mans classic next year they're going to have a race for more contemporary old le mans cars and it'd be nice to take the car back and dario fancies a go so um it'll be an all scots lineup i'm very very excited because our special guest today is none other than david gandy who is a great friend of mine an international supermodel designer he's been at the top of the male modeling industry for two decades one of my beliefs is that you should drive cars, even if you have, you know, a bit of a collection. They, they should be enjoyed by everyone, including yourselves. But I, I kind of believe that restoring cars is you're keeping something on the road for a lot of other people to enjoy for another, hopefully, you know, 60 years, however many years to keep it on the road. And I wasn't driving it. Life has gone in the way a bit. And I had other car projects on the go and the car was sitting there and I just didn't have time. So a lovely gentleman wanted to restore a 190, spoke to my restorer, Parry Channa, who you met, Jodes, and Parry said, listen, I think David might be willing to sell that if you make you know, a, a decent offer. Speak to him in the right way. <laughs> exactly. What was it like racing in the 90s? Because this was the F1 that I kind of remember growing up, and it was just amazing in my eyes. I think it's like one of the best eras. What was it like to be actually behind the wheel driving it? I think at the time it was very, very special. I don't think we realise what that period is until we probably go down a few decades and look back and go, wow, because it is what it is at the time. But for me, obviously, I can remember my very first Grand Prix, which was the Monaco Grand Prix, sitting in a Brabham Formula One car, knowing my dad had won that race in 59. I bet you had to, like, pinch yourself. I did a bit, yeah. I mean, back then, of course, you had 30 cars going for 26 slots in qualifying. So there was no guarantee you were going to make the race. I hit Brabham at the time when money was very short. It was a little bit in a disarray. The new car, the BT-59 that came out, was not as good as the 58 from the previous year. But regulations meant we couldn't race that, so we had to have the 59, and, and that was a bit of a disaster. But I managed to qualify you know, at Monaco, which was a very special moment. And, and I think, yeah, absolutely. When I look back at that period, it was fantastic racing, great drivers, you know, Senna, Prost, Mansell, Piquet, Patrese, Bootsen, just fantastic drivers, uh, fantastic period, and very lucky to be a part of it. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd.
I want to go on to another part of your life, which is your um, movie career life. Um, so you were in Le Mans and specifically were very close to the icon, Steve McQueen. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about it. The strange thing is, is when that took place, it was like it was the middle of my career, you know, mm. but it wasn't. It was only after four years or, something, or five years. And it went on for so much longer. And I look back now and I go, blimey, that was a long time ago. And of course it was. It, it was 1970. And again, it's sort of, it's just luck, isn't it? The way th the, ball, the ball rolls. I was out of a drive at the end of 69. And in 1970, what are we going to do? So I went up to Formula Two again with Tom Wheatcroft. And I got a sports car drive as well. Having done that sports car drive at Spa for Jack Swatters, my very first time there on the old circuit, Jack said, you know, I'd like you to work with us at Le Mans. We're going to be making a movie. And then and he said, yeah, they're going to use my car in the film. And then, of course, I got the shout that I had to go and race for Enzo. I wasn't happy to do that because Jack had given me my moment in sports cars, which I grasped with both hands at Spa. And here he was, Enzo, seeing I had talent, was putting me back in his team. And I thought, I'm not doing that. But however, we did Le Mans. And then, of course, I stayed on afterwards in 1970 and worked on the Steve McQueen movie. Again, it was one of those things. I mean, I was scratching around, you know, driving it in my own family team. You asked earlier about earning money. Well, well, mm. I never earned a penny until I actually went to Ferrari. And well, I must tell you, when I went to Ferrari, I got £500 for a Grand Prix and 250 for a Formula 2 race. Slightly different nowadays. Yes, I, I know. Cool, <laughs> <laughs> blimey. And they used to give it you in pound notes. What was it like actually living with Steve McQueen, with you and your family? Well, it's funny. I had to get out of the house that I'd rented. And for some reason, I guess it's because we all stayed over longer than they thought with making the movie, because it took longer. And suddenly he was out of accommodation. So was I. And I always got on well with him. So we ended up in a house, I guess he paid for it. I can't remember what the company, the solar productions paid for it. So the two families shared a house for about uh, two weeks. It wasn't very long. I knew him well before, obviously during the film. And basically, to answer your question, I mean, he, he just was one of us. Steve wanted to drive. The only reason he did the film was so he could drive a racing car. It wasn't that he wanted to make a movie about it. He wanted to race at Le Mans. He'd raced at Sebring and finished second, I think, with Peter Revson. He purely wanted to race. And he was, I realized subsequently, that he was actually a really good driver. because he was and I used to get, Yeah, he was talented. Movie making would finish on the Thursday or Friday night. And then they wouldn't do it over the weekend because I guess they used the track for other things, you know, sort of uh, commercial stuff. So we were free to go off and do our racing. Anyway, there were a few weekends that I did stay because there's no point in rushing off from my little house there. Where my family were there as well. So and, and remember, we'd, Steve said, come on. He said, let's go and ride the bike. So I got around to riding this 250 Yamaha and Steve had his Husky 400. We were riding around. It's all very around. If you can imagine them all, when there's no cars there, it's pretty, pretty deserted. And it's just woods. We were at the back of what we call Solar Village, which I know where that is myself. But I couldn't really describe it to you in the edge of the woods. It was just a, a cowboy on a bike. And I was trying to learn not to fall off. And I did my best. And eventually we came to the area where there was a big, big sort of high mass of quarry. So Steve said, cool, let's go up there, he said, you know. So he said, but wait here, I'll go and take a look. So he blasts up there on his heart, 
off he goes up the hill, probably only, you know, 100 yards from where we stood. He went along and then straight up to the top, disappeared. And then he came back to the top. He said, it's all right. He said, you're lucky. He said, come up here. He said, but you'll have to go back a couple hundred yards and build up some speed. So I went back and I came flying up and I went up and then I suddenly went straight up this sort of this slope of sand, uh, quarry stuff. And leaping up there, and when I get to the top, of course, you know, he was calling me on, calling me on, calling me on as I came. And I went over the top. And as I went over the top, of course, it dropped away. And it was a garbage pit. And I was in the air with my legs on the pegs. And I'm going, oh, my God. And I suddenly became a really good rider. And I did not fall off. And I landed on the back wheel and kept it open, carried on, and the slowed down, turned around. And he was just standing. It would have made a wonderful photograph. He was standing back on this high bank, just looking down at me, roaring with laughter. The fun really starts when you've got to stop 650 miles an hour. First of all, you've got to cool the engine for three seconds, which seems like an eternity. Then you can stop the engine so it stops the fuel going into the engine, shuts it down. And at the same time, you fire the brake parachute, which is a nuclear bomb parachute, which is designed for speeds of over 600 miles an hour. Deploy that, and immediately you get a deceleration of between 5 and 6 G. So Ooh. you're losing speed around Gosh. 130 miles an hour a second. That's huge. And that gives you an extraordinary effect called the somatographic illusion. Wow. And um, rather like an old television, what happens is the de- extreme deceleration upsets your inner ears, which give you the balance. The picture that you see through your eyes goes up like an old television did. You know, in the old days, you sort of have that vertical hold knob. And uh, you are convinced you're driving straight down into the middle of the earth. It's the most extraordinary experience. And how quickly in time would it have been to get up to the 633 miles an hour? About a minute. A minute of full power. That's 35,000 horsepower. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I just remember these iconic images that we remember sitting at home. Just this bullet going across with these plumes of sand coming up i mean it was yeah. it's something that's kind of etched in my my mind i mean forever and ever and would have inspired many many generations why was it so important to get the world record well because um it seemed pointless doing anything other than the world record mm. what is actually happening is you're putting together a, quite a large organization there are about 200 companies involved in it you've got to um, raise a lot of money Thrust one cost about a million pounds, which was a lot of money in 1983. Mm. And so you've got to have a terrific ambition so that the sponsors who are funding it really feel part of something very special and have something they can really promote. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. I have to say, I just love your name as well, Cece Modin. It sounds like a character from a movie. I mean, it's just brilliant. Um, where did your love of cars come from? Where was that first moment So I grew up in a car-obsessed family. My love of cars stems from my father primarily. But despite the fact that I grew up with them, it started getting into cars more in my late 20s and early 30s. So it was actually kind of a later thing for me. So growing up with them, it it was something that was around me always. I have memories of my father sitting in a corner reading Hemmings or Cavallino <laughs> or <laughs> sports car market and he, he is a Ferrari nut. Cut my father open and he bleeds red, Cavallino red. Give him a serial number and he'll tell you what car it is. There's a, a huge list of people who have inspired my love for classic cars. It's not just been my father. He was 
the first one, but I grew up with a, a godfather who owns a racing team. I made so many really good friends in the car world who have been mentors and who have taught me to love every side of cars from design to racing to restoration. But yeah, the seed was with him and my father has had the luck to have Tutti Frutti weird and wonderful collection of cars. He's had everything from a Ford Mustang to a uh, 250 GT Show base to an SS100 Jaguar. So he's had, or he has incredible cars. And yeah, some of my earliest memories are of being taken to car shows and races and on car rallies and of seeing him tinker with cars. And he even got me a little petrol driven Cobra when I was about five years old. Oh, incredible. <laughs> um, and the lore has it that my mother was taken around in a mirror around a, for a couple of laps when she was quite heavily pregnant. <laughs> Maybe that's where it came from. My dad's first love of cars was actually hot rodding. Oh, wow. And he's never worked in the car industry. Uh, cars have always just been a joy for him. He did a little bit of informal racing in his day. His claim to fame in the car world is he won uh, a support race ahead of a Mexican Grand Prix in the 80s at Hermano um, Rodriguez, Autodromo, uh, the GP circuit. Bought this car in 78. It's been his dream car. You know, that race, I think, was his, his pinnacle moment. But yeah, as I say, for him, cars have always been, he says, they are a, a passport to uh, experiences. So they are a way to meet incredible people, to go to incredible places. Most of our very best friends have come from the car world, from having met them at, you know, events, at rallies and shows. So he's been doing that for a long time and he would definitely classify as a collector. You're listening to highlights from the Chubb interview series with me, Jodie Kidd. So in this podcast series, we run a special theme called One Piece at a Time, asking our guests to select one prized possession to bring to the podcast. And at the end of the series, we'll have this beautiful collection. It could be a bit of a car, a photograph, an artefact or something that means something special to you. So we ask this of you, Derek. Please tell us what it is and explain about it. The first thing that springs to mind would be the first trophy. First thing I ever won which was at Goodwood in yeah, March the 13th, 1964. And I actually have got this alarm clock, a travelling alarm clock, a leather-bound travelling alarm clock in red. It's got the BARC badge on it and a plaque. And it says, Goodwood members meeting, winner D-Bell. I haven't got it here, it's in England, but I remember it because I've looked at it so many times. <laughs> uh, winner D-Bell, Lotus Ford, 66.48 miles an hour average. And it still sits on my shelf. I don't think I've ever used it. We do, as a family, still have Jack's winning Grand Prix trophies and all the other trophies that he's got. Never been a massive material person. I, I do have a watch that I got done with Stefan Johansson, who used to be a Formula One driver for Ferrari and McLaren. And he does his own watch range. So when I won Le Mans, I managed to get a component out of the winning Peugeot. And on the back of the watch, you've got that piece in my watch that says 2009 Le Mans. Uh, it's a David Brabham kind of Le Mans watch, which has got an engraving on the back of the watch. So that's pretty special because that, that does, that does mean something cool. to me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right up there. I think my one piece is a building and it's number 14 Queensgate Place Muse. It's where we've been for the last 27 years, and it's sort of part of us. It's part of our DNA. It's, it's where we've always been, and I can't imagine being without it. 
I used to fly a lot and I had airplanes and I loved my airplanes. My problem with the airplanes was that um, basically people didn't really like flying with me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I wonder and, why. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not a really social thing, I felt. And um, so I uh, basically migrated to boats. Every night I'd get out the iPad and search for boats for sale. And I, I, they all looked like um, Christmas cakes, you know, wedding cakes. And mm -hmm. I just uh, didn't turn me off at all until I found it in Norway which was a military patrol boat called a Combat 90E, which is a very, very clever boat. Um, and um, they've been used for um, search and rescue and also used for um, providing ambulance and fire engine support to the people in Norway and in Sweden. It's taken me five years to sort of restore it, but it is a oh, truly wow. wonderful thing. It's carbon fiber hull, got a huge truck, engine to drive it, which goes on forever. And it's got a, a Rolls-Royce Camille water jet. And so this thing does nearly 50 miles an hour. It's just a fabulous thing. And yeah, I love this thing dearly. Yeah, I have to say that from a designer point of view. I have something that enables me to be in the automotive world, to do what I do, to do what I love. And that has to be, without question, the Bic pen. <laughs> I cannot live without it. <laughs> I thought you were going to have like some fancy pencil or pen. Is it literally you do all your designs like with a Bic pen? Yeah, it's astounding. I mean, I've designed Ferraris, Maseratis, McLarens with, with this, this little guy here. That's amazing. Uh, it works. Yeah. It sure does. Yeah, it's iconic for me. I tell you what, I would have never have guessed that one. <laughs> I mean, of course, <laughs> it does I would have guessed the designer, but not a big one. No, it's the best pen for sketching. Absolutely amazing. I've got a key ring that has two special objects on it. One is a lens mount that I designed uh, in CAD during my PhD that was meant to go inside a vacuum chamber and have a bunch of lasers go through bits of it. It held a lens over a mirror. And when it went into the vacuum chamber, I realized that the lasers clipped on various sides of it. So I took a Dremel tool to it, basically carved away at the material. Wow. <laughs> and so thereafter, this thing sat in this vacuum chamber. And what I saw on the computer screen for four years of my life in a you know dark, cold laser lab with no windows was something that looked like a grotto because of the eaten away bits that had gone to the Dremel tool. And that, so a version of that hangs on a keychain. And the second object that hands on that keychain is my father's Shoho base keychain. The enamel has melted and chipped away. And you can still see clearly that it's an original Ferrari keychain, but it's sort of mangled. And, you know, it was passed on to me and, and I, I carry it on my on my daily driver's keys. So <laughs> keychain. So I would say that because it comes from my father. It is actually the A post the very rotten A-post of that Healy 100, which was given to me by the two guys who restored it in a disused fire station in a place called Malta, Illinois. And they mounted it on a, on a walnut plaque and gave me the car back. And it says underneath it, you know, this is the A-post of this car. It took us over 2,000 hours to restore. It hangs on my office wall. The reason it's important is because I've still got the car and it really is what turned me on to whether foolishly or wisely, this world of restoration of old cars. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to the Chubb interviews this year. We will be back in the new year for more Chubb interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time. Bye. The Chubb interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.